Hello and welcome to another episode of the Perception Podcast with me, your host, Caroline Partridge. Today, I'm marking this, the 50th episode of the series, by inviting back my very first guest, Professor of Experimental Psychology, Daniel C. Richardson, to deep dive into the fitting topic of memory. Once again, I'm astounded by the insights shared by Dan, as we learn that despite having an immense capacity for recognition, memory is not an objective instrument of recall, but essentially serves as a tool of storytelling. And that tool is highly susceptible to bias, expectation and suggestion. So please join me as we remember the past through a very different lens. Hello, Dan, and welcome again to the Perception Podcast. It is so fantastic having you here today. Thank you for being our guest. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Yeah, it, it was so your last your last episode was so fascinating and we covered so many amazing aspects of perception and the, I suppose, the physiology of perception. Um I just wanted us to focus today about an area that we touched on um, briefly in the last episode, and um, that is the area of memory and um, what happens with the memory process. Um, and also, is human memory an accurate record? Big Ec- question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It is. And as ever in psychology and science, the answer is, well, it's really hard and it depends how you measure it. Um, But I'll try and flesh that out a little bit. Because when we think of memory, you know, often we think of things in terms of metaphors, right? And if I say, what's the capacity, what's the size of human memory? We can think of it in one term, like, well, how much do I have to study for the exam? Can I remember that Mm. whole script? Could I put all that in my brain? Or we think of it as a metaphor, like sort of like phones and computers, right? Does your phone have one gigabyte of memory, three, 16? How many photographs can my phone hold? How many photographs can my brain hold? So it seems like there should be a good answer to how big is human memory, but it's quite difficult to, to measure. On the one hand, it looks massive if you look at it in, in a certain way. And you can probably, if I did this with you, it would be a bit creepy. If I got your uh, pictures from when you were 10 at primary school, yeah. Right. I could show you those pictures and you would probably recognize most of those people and could name them. Yeah. And we've done that with people in their 70s and shown them their high school yearbacks all the way back. And people can still encode all of that information. So when you look at recognition of stuff in the past, human memory is really, really accurate. It seems though you can have this superstore of information. Mm. Or if you show people uh, photographs, if I flash a photograph at you one at a time for like an hour, just flash, 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 really painful study. And then the next day I say, did I show you this one amongst all of that set? You're about something like 99% accuracy with about 10,000 photographs. If I shove in your mind, it's absolutely amazing. I don't know if you had that feeling of watching like a, a YouTube clip of an old TV show that you saw as a kid and you recognize the advert in the middle, mm. even though, you know, mm. I haven't seen it for 30 years. So on the one hand, we seem to, encode and hold on to vast amounts of information yeah on the other hand it seems that our memory is really really shoddy when we need to do more than just recognize and say yep i've seen that before when you need to do something when you need to understand that memory it suddenly seems to be really poor so you can ask me well let me ask you this um 
don't get one if you've got one, but think of a penny. Mm. And what's on the back of the penny? Uh, well, <laughs> what's on the back? It depends what what penny it is. If it's a one pence piece, I think it's uh, it's a weird thing. It's like a gate or something with um, it looks oh, like right. a. Yeah, it looks yeah, like yeah, it's a, a portcullis looks, or something. Yes, it's a portcullis. Yes, some sort of gate. Yeah, you you did the hard one. What's on the other side? Oh, uh, the the uh, the monarch's head. Excellent, and it's on every coin in this yeah. country. Yeah, is she facing left or right? She's facing. She, I think she's facing right. Are you sure? <laughs> That's the weird thing, right? We have seen so many coins. We've seen so many yeah. pictures of the Queen's head. If you're living in this country, right? You grew up with that change mm. your entire life. You've seen that a lot, far more than you've seen that kid you're at school with when you were 10 or that advert mm. for Cheetos that played when you were nine. You've mm. seen it all the time, but there's all this detail missing. You don't know if she's looking left or right. And to be honest, yeah. I've forgotten which is the right answer. But the point is, no one can be sure. And if I was to show you a penny and flip it round, you wouldn't say, hang on, that's the wrong way round. Yeah, yeah. So it's this weird thing. On the one hand, we retain all of this information. You ask about the details, which way she's facing. Suddenly, we have no clue. That's incredible. So this is the weird characteristic of memory that it's just not like your computer that can hold a thousand photographs, ten thousand photographs, and you can recall them with great detail and see them. It's really it's working in a very different way. Mm. And so, what is it then dependent upon? What factors uh, affect our memory and our, our uh, and us be a, being able to recall with precision? We don't. The precision bit is just <laughs> not there. We can sort of bluff it and tell ourselves that we have it. So what we do when we recall, right? Again, we have this metaphor of picking a book from the library and flicking through that chapter, right? We think memories like that. I'll just pick that that chapter off my brain shelf and I'll read that memory off or I'll get that photograph off my, my hard drive. That's not really what your brain is doing when you're recalling a memory. It sort of feels like it, but that's a bit of an illusion. What you're doing when you recall a memory is actually reconstructing it. You're retelling that story. You're not pressing play on the, the DVD player of your brain. Uh, you are spinning a story and telling yourself that detail. You're filling it in. You're generating the mental imagery every time you retell it. Mm. It's big. There's one metaphor about... Um, you know, you made a fantastic dinner last uh, last week, and then you want to make it again last week. You open the fridge, but you've only got a few bits of the ingredients, a few tiny bits. But you sort of mm. try and reconstruct it anyway. You try and put it together. And that's what you're doing with your, your memories. You've got these small elements of information, what you call the gist, and the rest of it, you're just making up. And you're going along with what you think should have happened. Okay, so memories really, or, or when we recall memories, really, we're not obviously recalling the, or maybe not obviously, but we're not recalling the actual events as they happened in photographic detail. So we're piecing together uh, these snippets of. I don't even know how to describe it. When I say memory, now you know we're snipping together these pieces, these pictures, these um, uh, memories. I don't know, and we're and we're putting to them together as best we can to recreate this event that took place in the past. 
Yeah, that's right. We are. We've got little bits of information, little scraps of of the of the true memory of the information, and the rest we're just storytelling and generating a memory that looks about right based on our assumptions. And that sort of looks about right thing are words that in psychology we talk about the schema or the gist of a memory. Mm. So, for example, you can show. Um, trying to see if this works. So, if I took a. a picture of, of you right now sat in what looks like your home office and i showed that to people um for a few seconds then took it away then later said can you list what was in uh caroline's office or a uh, home right there mm. they might remember books they might remember a chair they might remember a painting and the thing but you could ask questions like what color was the lamp and they'll say uh i think it was a black lamp or maybe a yeah. gold one yeah. if you add in objects that would normally be in that scene, you can convince people that they actually saw them because that's sort of the gist of mm. that thing. So what they do is they want to remember Caroline had sort of a dungaree thing on, they'll have little bits of information and they'll remember, and she was sat in her office and then they'll fill in details of what an office usually looks like. Ah, Because it's... that's, because we all know all offices look kind of the same, right? There is a commonality. And we use that to fill in that sort of information. So and... another way to do it, let, let's see if we can do this. Hang on. I had a list of things. Let me do it off the top of my head. Uh, so I could just give you some words to do, right? You can give people words to remember as well and see if they remember those things. Uh, and if I give you, here we go. So you're going to remember these words, okay? You ready? Okay. All right. Uh, door, glass, pane, shade, ledge, sill, house. Open, curtain, frame, view, breeze, sash, screen, <laughs> shutter. Okay. Stay in your brain? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, can you remember one of those words for me? Yes, door. Okay, excellent. That was the first one. Uh, can you remember any others? Yeah. Pane, window, glass, shutter, ledge. Oh, you. you are a perfect example of a human being. <laughs> so I never said window. You can rewind and listen to the list. I never said window at all. What wow. I said is lots of words that are related to window. To window, yes. And because you're building up a scheme, your brain is going, oh, this is all window-like things or front of house things. What else yeah. are going on that list? Well, window would. So you yeah. falsely remember. It's called list intrusion. You falsely remember that thing was there because it kind of seemed like it should, given it everything else. It should be there. Yeah. Damn, you tricked me. <laughs> oh, you were great. Not like, did you see window? You came right out with it. Perfect. Because I was, it was interesting as you were talking there, I was creating this visual picture and I thought, bloody hell, he's going fast, right? Okay, so what do we have here? A door with a pane with, a, a, and normally you would say window pane. And then you said glass, which again refers to window and frame, which refers to window. All of these things, all of those words actually have an association with window. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. so then I will, you know, my obvious kind of uh, go-to was to add window to them. That's so interesting, crikey. That's so you mad. use these sort of stories that you know already, stereotypes, typical things, all of that knowledge about what the world is like, and you use that to reconstruct that memory. So if I, you know, list words that are in a hospital, you might remember the word nurse because there's normally a nurse hanging mm. around in the hospital. That nurse will probably be female because that's the stereotype. Mm. You know, it's not true mm. that there are male nurses as well, 
but you use all that stereotypical information that you absorbed from watching hospitals on TV. And that, that knowledge is what you use to reconstruct and retell that memory. Wow. It's a creative process of storytelling when you remember, not a grab a thing and press play. It's a creative story that you're regenerating every time. Wow. So, and that story then, that story then is subject to change every time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a family story that gets retold every Christmas and embellished a little bit each time. And you'll even, and because memory is very visual, just as you did, people generate images in their mind uh, while they're remembering something, while they're retelling a story. And those images that they'll regenerate then become the memory. They say, I can see it in my mind's eye. You're not seeing a recording of something in the past. You're seeing the thing you've just generated. And that may or may not be accurate. Yeah. And I suppose we use this as well to support those things that we generate. We use to support our story and say, well, I'm right. You know, I think of I think of um, uh, when people are called to witnesses, called to trial. Absolutely. Yeah. This is quite problematic because our sort of legal system is based on this kind of assumption that memory is this sort of objective recording like a video mm-hmm. camera. But as you say, it's just not. It's this retelling and it's sort of retelling with bias and expectations. Right. So if mm-hmm. I say what was in the office, I will remember books being there because they usually are. Right. Mm-hmm. People might remember my office here is having books, even though you can't see them right now in the shop. So people creatively will add to it based on their assumptions, which is the last thing you want in a law case, right? Where you really want just the facts. You're never getting just the facts. You're getting what people think the facts probably would be and telling a story. And those, and those, sorry to interrupt you, but those, and those facts are based on our biases and our life experience and our past experience and everything to do with things that we've seen and experienced in our lives and not really the actual event. Absolutely. Yeah. There was, um, and there are some horrible cases where this has gone wrong, right? Mm. There was this guy, uh, Charles de Menes, I think he was called, um, who was a suspect in the London bombs of oh, yeah. um, 7-7. Uh, and it wasn't him at all, uh, but he was sort of falsely identified and actually shot by the police mm. on the basis of false identification. Uh, but if you ask witnesses at the time, People thought that he was one of the terrorists who did it. And you ask them to remember what they saw. They say that he had this big bulky jacket and that he leapt over the uh, over the barriers to get into the underground. And I someone remember. even said they, rem- they remember seeing wires coming out of the jacket. None of this happened. And we've got the CCTV thing of him walking on in without a coat and just going through the barriers like everyone else. But what the people are doing there is they're being asked by BBC News or whatever, what did the terrorists look like? And they're filling in that idea and they're generating all of this imagery. And they sincerely believe that's what they saw, but they didn't. They're just using that stereotype because they've been told he was a bad man and he did it, which he didn't. But because that's their assumption, they're just bringing in all that stereotypical knowledge about what a terrorist might look like. God, that's incredible. And then that does also really flag up a lot of... um, uh, What's the word I'm searching for? It flags up a lot of uh, uh, errors, I suppose, that can take uh, that that are prevalent in the judicial system when it comes to uh, eyewitness reports. When it comes to people identifying uh, certain people, 
Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and they are going to be leaning on their stereotypes of mm -hmm. people and types of people, and that's what's going to be feeding into those storytelling memories. Wow, that's incredible. And there are, um, we've been, there's been some influence on psychologists on the legal system, at least in America, because uh, what we've found is that people are very susceptible to retelling these stories, right? Each time you retell it, you regenerate that memory and it shifts what, what might actually be true. And you can do this in people quite easily, particularly in children, because they're quite susceptible to these sorts of illusions. They have poor metacognition, we call it. They're thinking about their thinking isn't that advanced. So if you've got a niece or a nephew that you see, you know, three times a year, a nine or 10 year old, you can try this trick with them <laughs> if you want. Um, you can ask them about a memory. You can say, you remember last time uh, I saw you and I took you to the dentist. Do you remember that? And then the dentist bit your leg. Do you remember? <laughs> and the first time you do it, they'll say, no, what are you talking about, Auntie Caroline? That's rubbish. That never happened. You say, oh, OK. Then the next time you meet them, you say, hey, do you remember we were talking last time about when I took you to the dentist? And they, the dentist bit your leg. How weird was that? And they might say, yeah, I don't really remember it. Three or four times later, you'll say, do you remember when we went to the dentist and the dentist bit your leg? They'll say, yeah, it was really weird. I don't know why he did it. He was pretending to be a dog and he was barking. They will start to fill in that story because you basically told them this happened. They created a mental image of it happening to understand what you're saying. Mm. And that mental image starts to become a memory. That's crazy. We're very, very bad at distinguishing between memory and imagination because it's all the same visualization, all the same mental process. So over time, they'll think that out of the dentist biting their leg, that looks a bit like their memory. And now they'll fill it and they'll say, Yeah, I was really surprised. I yelped and he jumped back when he bit me. That's so crazy. And do you think then that that is part of this? Because there was a there was a big thing, wasn't there? False memory syndrome in the was it the eighties, the nineties? Yeah, so mid early nineties. Yeah, 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 yeah. So one influence because children are particularly uh, susceptible to these biases, and because what happens in the legal system is you get asked the same question again and again and again. You talk mm -hmm. to the police and you say, you talk to your lawyers, you talk to their lawyers. Uh, it happens again and again and again. You're asked to recall this, whatever happened, right? So it's really easy to fall into that trap of regenerating the memories. And because we know in particular children are very susceptible to this, that's why law started to be introduced because of this research in psychology um, that if you have a child as a witness in a case, you interview them once and you record it and you mm -hmm. replay that video. If you're an adult, you might be asked the same question 20 times. Yeah. You're still going to be biased, but that's where we've sort of changed the law to try and get around that bias. Yeah. Wow. But as you say, there were some cases in the 90s of very, um, there was one school that got shut down because their children were remembering horrific sort of satanic, literally satanic rituals mm -hmm. that were happening. And in that particular uh, situation, the case fell apart because they had just confabulated. They had made up these stories mm -hmm being urged and asked again and again and again. And of course, they're always very vivid. And that makes the memory seem real because they were so vivid and lurid in that particular case. Wow, that's incredible. That's what we have to say, of course, is that horrible things that happen in childhood, we shouldn't doubt the memories of people when they say that. Right? No, no. Not at all saying that all of those memories are false and by that process, we're just saying that that process of recollection and repeated recollection you have to be very careful with it because it's susceptible to bias. Yeah. 
not Let's... to doubt the truth of the kernel of information there, but those details might be wrong. And that can be very important with um, some memories that, you know, where you might remember something horrible to happen and a, a teacher was wearing a particular yellow coat, right? But then you might find later the teacher will say, well, I didn't buy that coat until years later, so that couldn't possibly be true. But yeah. what's happened is someone has recreated and regenerated that memory. So the fact the yellow coat wasn't there, that doesn't really matter for the truth or not of it, right? That's just been inserted later. That doesn't mean the mm -hmm. whole thing is false. It just means how we tell stories is similar to how we generate these memories. That's quite, that's incredible. Because then this obviously then does open up this whole question of what is truth and what is um and what is what and what has been constructed uh as truth um and obviously listening to people and their first their first explanation or their first telling of uh an event and and really focusing on the so well this is it how do you how do you what do you focus on then say say for example, somebody uh, as a child comes to uh, uh, it, uh, describes an event, um, maybe a traumatic event. So how how do we then look at that? How is that? You know, how do we, in an unbiased and understanding and supportive way, look at that, but also in a in a kind of objective way? Yeah, it's very difficult to do that, I think. And I have a particular, well, mildly traumatic event from my own childhood um, that after doing one of these lectures, I can't remember if we talked about this on the previous podcast, um, but I was thinking about memory and past events. And I was thinking, what's an, uh, an episode from my childhood that I have a very vivid memory of? And my most vivid memory is of uh, being on the beach when I was, I think, about four so just a little kid, big sort of sandy beach. And there are all these deck deck chairs, the really old fashioned wooden kinds that sort of scissor up and down. Mm. And I sort of was playing with one and kicked the strut and it scissored down and it cut my thumb open. Ooh. And it was really painful. And I sort of ran around going, ow, 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 like this. And no one could catch me. And the blood was spurting out. And this blood was like flying and landing on my family's face. Like sort of blood spurt. <laughs> it was like really... Slightly like, grisly in my memory. Texas, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was yeah. blood in Granny's ice cream. And I can sort of, there's all this fine detail. I can remember the blood landing on the sand and sort of the blood drying and the grains of sand forming this little crust as sort of the blood dried. But I ran around splattering my family. And then eventually this um, lady came up who was a nurse. And my family panicking. She just went up to me and went, shush, grabbed the thumb, pinched it, and it stopped. And suddenly everything was fine. We were sort of rescued by this passerby. And I have a vivid memory of all of these details. I can tell you what people were wearing. Granny had the ice cream, but there was a flake of blood landed on it. You know, <laughs> visualize this. Because this story gets told every time someone in my family cuts themselves in the kitchen. Right? You nick yourself with a knife. They go, oh, don't be like Daniel. Don't run around panicking. Right? That's everyone says whenever there's blood in our houses. Don't be like Daniel when he Don't be like Daniel when he was four, yeah. It's a lovely memory that gets regurgitated. So I, I have all these details and I wanted to know, well, how accurate, you know, were, is my imagining, is my remembering of this particular event? So I phoned up my dad and asked him about it. And he said, what the hell are you talking about? 
what beach? I was like, no, was it Isle of Wight we're at or was it somewhere in Somerset? And he said, well, neither. What are you talking about? And it turns out the actual event that happened was not in the beach at all. It was in our garage and there was some uh, deck chairs, like lawn chairs that were hanging up on the wall and I got them down and was playing with them. No beach at all. That's... I did cut my finger on the edge of one. It was actually a metal one, not a concertina one. It was just a regular deck chair. Um, and all of these things I've just sort of filled in because the little element of truth is someone said, you cut your hand on a deck chair. Well, I've gone into my mind and got the stereotypical deck chair. That's that wooden one that you see in the movies. And oh, I've assumed, well, it's a deck chair, so I must have been at a beach, right? So I've created this stereotypical beach from my mind that's very beachy and very, you know, looks. But there was no sand whatsoever. I just that, imagined the blood going everywhere and pictured what it would look like and use that to create the memory. And that again reinforces, as you would the the example that you, you know, the the exercise that you did with me with the window. Okay, yeah, exactly. will suggest exactly the same thing. Will suggest. And I didn't uh, frankly I didn't believe my dad because I thought, no, you're because I can see it. I can see it in my mind. You are you are lying to me, you're <laughs> gaslighting me. And he said, No, no. And then he said, Well, who's this person who stopped the blood? And he said, well, that was just a neighbor who happened to be a paramedic. They weren't a nurse per se. Mm. I said, no. And then I realized, and I went back to my image of the woman who came along and saved, saved the day. And I, look, and I looked at her in my mind's eye and realized she's wearing a blue dress, okay, with like an old-fashioned bustle at the back and a hat with a flower in. And then I realized, oh, for Christ's sake, that's Mary Poppins. Whoa. And I put Mary Poppins into my memory. Whoa. Because, That's... you know, my, my little brain was going, there was this woman who was really calm and took charge of the situation. What's the stereotype of that? Some Julie Andrews, Mary Poppins, who just saved the day. And that's what I can see. And I didn't realize it was Mary Poppins. They're like, why has she got a bustle on? Who wears a bustle in <laughs> 1980s childhood? <laughs> that's, that's, that's amazing. That's, when you describe it like that, it really illustrates how we we are such storytellers exactly and that's what memory is it's storytelling not replaying and recording that's incredible um and i you know i always worry is it just me am i a weirdo right <laughs> whenever you find out about this stuff but i started to ask my class uh of about you know 150 kids getting to say you know what's that one story about your child that gets retold every time and can you write that down then phone your parents and ask them what happened. Mm -hmm. And it's always things like, you know, my hamster got eaten by the cat. And I remember seeing the little paw of the hamster poking out the cat's mouth. It turns out they just, the hamster just ran away, was never eaten by the cat, but that's what she sort of put together. It must've been the cat. And she can remember the cat chewing it. Never happened at all when she talks to her parents. That's, that's nuts. So, so, Wow. That's that's incredible. And crucially, it's this retelling bit, right? If it's just something that happened to you and have that memory, then maybe it will be quite accurate. But if it is something that gets retold every Christmas, if it is something you say every time a pet goes missing, let's hope it's not like the hamster, that retelling is the thing that introduces the distortion again and again. And I suppose we're bringing in things to to support our story. We're bringing in evidential elements to support that story and so well don't you remember are, are you you know there was there was this and there was that and exactly wow. yeah wow 
that's quite amazing. And so, um, so wow, really there, you've just said <laughs> human memory is, is really, uh, really fallible. Uh, yeah, and it is. Um, and if one were sort of cynical or deceptive or want to do bad things, you can manipulate it very easily as well. Mm. Right. Just mm. as you, someone's telling a story, you can add in details and change the story. How you do that reconstruction is susceptible to bias. So like this example mm. of saying, do you remember when the dentist bit your leg? That's an extreme case where you've um, generated a whole new thing. But you can very subtly bias people in lots of ways. Uh, there was a classic study done in the 70s on memory by Liz Loftus, um, where they showed people a video of a car having a little crash, having a fender bender. Mm. And then if you change, you then want to ask people, how fast was the car going? But you ask them, how fast was the car going before the bump? How fast was the car going before the smash? Yeah. One sounds faster. You recreate that thing with that word I've given you, smashed. And you increase the speed of that crash. Wow, we're so we're so susceptible, aren't we? Yeah, because to... this this re uh, this reconstruction is almost a collaboration with the person you're talking to. Exactly, and it's completely unconscious. Yeah, yeah, and then you will generate this image, and that will be your memory. You feel like you are replaying the tape in your mind. We're not really aware of this fact that it's a retelling each time. And so, wow, wow. There was the in our last also in our last uh, in our last conversation, you did give that incredible example of the professor who'd asked his who'd asked his his class about. Oh yeah, event. that's right. That was um, Dick Nicer who asked uh, his class to remember it was the Challenger shuttle disaster, which happened in the nineties ninety seven I think, and he asked his. Um, senior year undergraduates to write down what they were doing the day of this disaster that happened two years ago and they wrote down you know i was uh in the cafeteria i saw it on tv i ran home i called my mom they can remember all of this detail and then he he got those diary the, those um uh recollections from them and then said well you're wrong that's not what happened and the people were a little outraged like how can you tell me i'm wrong what do you know and said well i know because i asked you two years ago to write down what happened that day because so these are children who were in students rather these are students who are in his first year class he got them to write down the day of the challenger shuttle disaster what happened then he found them again in three years time and asked them to recollect and when you put those two things next to each other what was written the day and what was written two years afterwards they were completely different wow about half of those recollections had no details in common whatsoever so this one mentioned the cafeteria this one didn't at all they were just completely inaccurate and the degree to which the students believed that was their true memory didn't predict how accurate they were at all. And I wonder, so, so, I mean, well, that that's the proof is in the pudding really there, isn't it? So what was their response? I mean, that really is a, uh, uh, laying out the proof before the, the students. Wow. Yeah. It's really hard. I mean, they, some people thought they'd fake the handwriting that wasn't really theirs. There was a lot of outrage, really, because yeah. you're sort of questioning something important about someone. If I'm saying that's not what you experienced, that's not your memory. What do you know? That is my memory. Yeah. Well, isn't that part of our, us being human, you know, wanting to be right and wanting to uh, and. And if you turn around and say, well, actually, everything that you that you remember is just a fabrication 
or not everything you remember remember is a fabrication. There may be some memory there. However, there is uh, embellishment around that that initial yeah initial memory. So it can be really difficult when you're talking about memories, particularly autobiographical memories. And I don't want to sound like as a scientist, I'm wandering through, you know, your personal biography saying that never happened. That's wrong. That's wrong. Because what those things are, are stories and personal stories that, like all stories, have great meaning and value. Some of the details might be wrong. The person wasn't wearing that coat. That didn't really happen. But that's not the important thing about it. The important thing about it is that story that you tell. Mm. So just the just because the details are wrong, that doesn't mean it doesn't have meaning and value as a memory. Mm. Mm. Thank you. I think that's a really important thing, you know, to remember as well. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that uh, because our stories give our lives meaning. It's the storytelling that you're doing, mm. and also as human beings, we think we're the central character all the yeah. time. So yeah. to retelling the story where I'm much more important than I probably was at the time, because that's I, I put myself at the center of all stories. Yeah. Well, we all do, don't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in fact, you can. Um, it's a little memory trick that you can exploit if you have to remember a shopping list or, or some random words. If you think about how they're relevant to you, you'll actually remember those words much better. Because <laughs> what's the most important thing in the world? It's Daniel or Caroline. But yeah. you can exploit that self bias as a little memory hack if you have to remember stuff. Well, this and this is quite this is this is good because I was going to actually ask you ways how can we improve our memory ways to ways to improve our memory but also before that actually what i wanted to ask you is um so and i i I suppose you've kind of answered this but um what factors affect our memory our recall i should say um and also about memory loss so there's quite a lot there, I suppose. So what? So firstly, what factors then? And I, maybe you've already kind of covered this, but that really sort of affect how we recall memories. Yeah. So you can sort of flip this on its head and say, well, okay, but if I have to recall this list of ten words or this French vocab, um, how can I best remember that? Hmm. And what you sort of want to do is to make that initial what we call the encoding stage as involved and as deep as possible. You want to have a wide as activation of your brain as possible, as deep as activation to really work your brain in that first instance. So you're laying down more memory activation when you come to encode it later. So if you give people a list of words and you just get them to write them down, then remember them, they won't do very well. If you get them to write down those words and define each of them and think deeply about them, they'll now remember them better. It's called depth of processing. So the more you're thinking about those words in the first instance, the more your memory, your your brain is being activated, the more chance you have of later remembering, remembering them. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of stuff showing that, um, for example, if you're in a lecture, you could press record on your little iPhone and record what was being said. You could type and make notes, or you could handwrite notes, or you could handwrite notes and do little drawings. Mm-hmm. And just pressing record is easier and in some ways better because you record it, but you will remember more the more effort you put into that note-taking. If you draw pictures and write it down, because it's more effort to take the notes, that means that you remember more. It's like you know, putting in more effort at the gym will pay off more in the same way. 
But that's so interesting because I've always thought, you know, when you're writing notes, how present are you in listening to what's actually being said? Now, is that a different thing? You know, yes, that's that's a a slightly different thing. This is just the criteria. Are you remembering what's being said? Yeah. There's a separate thing of am I being engaged by it? Am I thinking about it? Am I having Mm. my own thoughts? That's a different thing. But if your if your test is just have you remembered these five things? then yeah, note-taking is really, really Mm. useful, but it it can take you out of imaginatively engaging what's being said, for example. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things you can do if you want to improve the memory, again, is one way to do that deeper level of processing is to be very visual, right? Where where vision is our dominant sense. It's sort of the biggest area of the brain is, is to do with vision over every sense. And the more you can visualize stuff, that gives you sort of more diverse brain activation and makes it more like you remember stuff. So lots of these people who have, you know, super memories, what they're very good at is just they practice this skill of visualizing. Mm-hmm. So when you want to me- remember someone's name, you think of a, of a mental image that sort of combines these things in a funny way. And the, the more detailed, the funnier that mental image is, the better chance you have of remembering stuff. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you, and I mean, I suppose this is slightly different, but um, I can really recognize a lot of faces. I can remember people's faces, but the names, and I think this is quite common with a lot of people, names may then escape me. And it's, I suppose it's marrying the two together because I did another episode actually when I talked to another professor about super recognizers and super recognition and how people, there are some people that can recognise uh, and remember, they can store up to like 6,000 faces yeah, in their yeah. memory. You know, it's it's quite incredible. Um, but so so remembering the name and the face is a question of embellishing the, the, the information that you're given, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I, I would have, I used to say that I was sort of like you, I could sort of get faces, but I'm very bad with names, but it's, it's a, it's a surprisingly easy fix if you want to remember people's names and you just need to spend a little bit of time when they introduce you first to deeply encode that. So rather than just say, okay. Oh, hi, you're Doug. Nice to meet you, Doug. Take a few mental seconds to think, how am I going to remember Doug? Uh, like a spade, <laughs> a spade, a spade sticking out of his head. Like yeah. it's been hit like a zombie. Imagine blood coming down, <laughs> splashing on his glasses. I don't know why my imagery is so violent today. Uh, but you create some crazy image like that, right? Or someone is called Wendy. Or I, one of my students called Wendy. I imagined Wendy, her in a wind tunnel with her hair billowing and her face going that. And it was so windy. And that gets you to Wendy. And if you just take yeah. about five seconds to do a crazy cartoon image of them, you've got it. That's it. That's all it takes. That is amazing. That is fantastic. Oh, God, thanks, Dan. This is... <laughs> it is a bit awkward. So I do it with my students because it takes about four or five seconds. And I've been told while I'm doing it, I'm just staring at them like this. <laughs> so, oh, hi, Wendy. And I stare at them. And, like, and it really freaks people out because they think I'm going to stare into their brain. I have to say, oh, no, what I'm doing is imagining you with a shovel in your head and wind everywhere. <laughs> but, that so. is, that's, a, that's really brilliant, actually, in terms of helping us... Uh, remember names and uh, uh putting names to faces thank you for that um um so oh god there's so much more i want to ask you but i know <laughs> i know we could talk for hundreds of hours so i'll just want one of the last things that i suppose that uh, with memory um is is the 
is the arena, the area of memory loss and how that, and also, I mean, there's a lot of work in uh, with dementia and when people talk about uh, witnessing people who have dementia, not being able to recognise uh, their nearest and dearest, however, being able to recall something that maybe happened years ago in their childhood with real accuracy or remembering somebody's name or or uh, an event and being able to um, use that recall. So how does that, how does that, how does that work? How does, how, what's happening to the memory there? Yeah, um, it's a fascinating area and you should get a, an expert on, a neuroscientist who studies memory loss and yeah. particularly and to explain exactly what is going wrong and changing in the brain with different types of dementia or memory loss mm, mm. happen in different ways. But one explanation is it's not, it's not, or it may not be, it's not like the brain, the memory has been wiped, right? Like you've mm. lost something on your hard drive, that memory's gone. What might be going wrong in some types of dementia is that process of retrieving the memory. So the information might be there, but that regenerating that memory trace and finding that memory and getting it back might be the thing that's problematic. So some therapies with people in dementia basically help that process along. Mm. And the way they help people remember and reconstruct that memory is by what we call contextual cues. So there are some, this was started back in the 80s um, by a Harvard professor. Um, and what she did was go into old people's homes and sort of up the cues in the background. So she would decorate their rooms with posters from their youth. They mm -hmm. only played a radio station that had the songs from when they were young. So you increase all the background information to help people regenerate those memories. And that often happened. You often get that when sort of therapies of people who are losing their memory. You sort of we go through an old photo album, you'll help them find that memory and reactivate it. And you're giving them sort of contextual cues of songs and smells even to, to help find those things. So yeah. it's not like, yeah. You've wiped your hard drive and that information has gone forever. It's just a case of reawakening it, getting them to tell that story again. They need some help from the outside world. Wow. And don't we all? Don't um, we all? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, Dan, thank you so much. It's been so fascinating, as ever, as always, talking to you. And and thank you for helping um, unlock, I suppose, uh, some of the secrets to, to memory and to recall and to what it actually is and what's actually going on with us. Um, and to really see, as you were talking, I just thought, wow, our, our memory again really is subject to our perception and other people's perception and other people's suggestion and influence upon us. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Incredible. Dan. Thank you. Not thank at all. You. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's brilliant. What wonderful conversation. Um, and hopefully I can drag you back at some stage. Um, oh, sure. To, uh, 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 and we'll look, look again at more uh, perception. Um, so, yes. So if people want to find out more about you, where can they, where can they find you? What are you on? Oh, the best are thing you... is, yeah, the UCL um, has a a site for all of us academics. So if you search for Daniel Richardson UCL, 
We're there. Um, I also have a consultancy company called ACN Labs, where me and a neuroscientist friend try and leave the laboratory, leave the ivory tower, and go out into the world and use psychology to understand real world problems. Um, so that's been quite fun as well. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Well, I have to get you back on to talk about that, actually. Oh, sure. It's been yes. really, be really good. Um, get both of you on to talk about that. Um, and uh, thank you. Not at all. As I say, it's always a pleasure to to speak to you. And thank you, everybody, for listening uh, to this episode of the Perception Podcast. Please, please like and follow and share and subscribe. And I will see you next time. Bye. Bye.